This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And hey, yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. I am Dr. Ebony A. Utley. I'm an assistant professor of communication studies at California State University, Long Beach. So my first song is Snoop Dogg's Murder Was the Case. And I am going to date myself, but I was in high school when Murder Was the Case was released. And it's a, it's a, a seminal song for me because it's the song that started my research on hip hop, believe it or not. arrived live on the scene of a murder that happened late last night and although details are very sketchy we do know that one of the shooting victims is rapper Snoop Doggy Dog. There was apparently a lot of gunfire. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana and I grew up in the Baptist Church and on Sundays the rules were that you weren't allowed to listen to rap music. Sunday was a church music, gospel music day only and I remember the Sunday I came out of church, 11 o'clock service and some of my friends were listening to Snoop in the church parking lot. And I thought, oh my God, that's against the rules. But that is super cool at the same time. And so that's the moment where I first started thinking about the connections between rap and religion. And it wasn't just an issue that I was personally having or my Sunday school peers were having, but that rappers were talking about too when they were trying to explore their relationship between themselves and God and themselves and religion and morality. So that's when I first started thinking about Murder Was the Case. As I look up at the sky, my mind starts dripping, a tear drops my eye, my body temperature falls, I'm shaking and they breaking, trying to slay the dough, pumping on my chest and I'm screaming, I stop breathing, damn I see demons. Snoop was one of the first rappers to actually have the case that he rapped about. When Murder Was the Case came out, Snoop was actually facing charges for being an accessory to murder. And so this is the first time that hip-hop is sort of involving itself in these potentially criminal elements and there are conversations about it. And Snoop is with Death Row at the time. And Suge Knight is sort of pimping it for all that it's worth. And it's also the first time that the, the head of a label has so much control over his artists' personal lives and professional lives and meshing them together in these really interesting and complex ways. So a label called Death Row now has an artist that's facing serious prison time for the death of someone else. I mean, it's so ironic. It's beautiful in the same sense that it's incredibly tragic. So Murder Was the Case is not just an imagined song for him, but it's his own life sort of playing out on the stage. And the video is pretty much the Faust story of a man who sells his soul to the devil and has to live with the consequences. So Snoop is facing murder within the video. He makes a deal with the devil, who interestingly is both black and white. 
And so what does it mean that this black Jesus shares the same body with the white devil and when Snoop makes a deal for them, what does that mean for him? But the idea of what it means to sell one soul to the devil, what it means to be embroiled with whiteness, with whiteness having control over black bodies, and what that means within the video and what that means in the prison system and the prison industrial complex and putting all that together layered with Snoop's conversation with God and his prayers with God just made it a perfect text that resonated with my personal life and also with my professional writing life. I think it's too late for praying. Hold up. Her voice spoke to me and it slowly started saying Bring your lifestyle to me, I make it better. How long will I live? Eternal life better Oh, will I be the G that I want? I make it much better than you can imagine or even dream of. So relax your soul. Let me take control. Close your eyes, my soul. My eyes are closed. I think the video is 18 minutes. I call it a mini movie music video. It's also the first time we had had a, a short, well, a long form music video or like a short form film for a music video. I guess it depends on how you see it. But Show Knight was genius in that. I mean, before R. Kelly started making his long video stories, Snoop had done it in Murder Was the Case for the very, very first time. And that video, I imagine, had to have been mad expensive. I mean, stuff blowing up all over the place like that. It was costly for them to sort of make that investment. And it's the first time we really start to see those shifts. And for all the suspect things that one can say about Suge Knight, he was definitely on his businessman when it came to pimping Snoop and murder was the case. And Snoop's biography or autobiography that came out soon after that sort of talked about his experiences with working with Suge. And it was just one of those genius packages across different types of media that seems commonplace today, but in 1994 was a really big deal. So not just sonically, but like visually and business-wise as well. I'm fresh up off my coma. I got my mama and my daddy and my homies in my coma. It's gonna take a miracle late safe for me to walk again and talk again. But anyway, I get fronted some peace to get back on my feet. And everything that nigga said came to reality. Living like a ball alone, having money and blowing hella chronic smoke. I bought my mama a beans and bought my boo boo a jag. And now I'm rolling in the nine trips, eight L dog brand. Just remember, you changed your mind. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, on the east side. The neighborhood is situated between uh, the trailer park and the projects. And there are no sidewalks in my neighborhood. And it wasn't until I left my neighborhood that I realized how impactful that actually was to not have sidewalks in your neighborhood. It suggests that no one is walking anywhere and no one is going any place and no one needs access to that particular neighborhood. So when I moved to cities where there were sidewalks everywhere, I called my mom when I first moved to Chicago and I was like, Mom, they have sidewalks. <laughs> I don't think she understood like how big a deal that was, but you know how difficult it is to move around a neighborhood with no sidewalks. So I didn't move around the neighborhood much. I spent a lot of time in the house. I spent a lot of time reading. Like that was my thing. Like I really loved to read. I was always getting in trouble for reading. And my parents put me into a lot of stuff. Like I definitely credit my mom for increasing my curiosity because when I was a kid, she found a class for everything. I took classes in ballet, in jazz, in baton twirling, and piano, and flute, and clarinet and gymnastics and <laughs> and singing and theater. I mean, if there was a class for it, like, I took it. And if I hated it, that was fine. But if my mama had prepaid, I need to finish my four to six weeks for the intro class, and then I wouldn't have to do it again. Exposing me to all those different things and all those different types of people made me curious about things that I don't know about. So, believe it or not, when I went to Northwestern, I was studying abolitionist rhetoric from the 1800s. Like, I'm trained as an old-school rhetorical critic. And I really love that 
that discourse, but then I wanted to move to something more contemporary, so I wrote my master's thesis on black power and civil rights rhetoric uh, and the conversation, the similarities between some of the things that, that King and Malcolm X were doing in their in their arguments when it came to constructing audiences. So I called it race talk and eavesdropping audiences. So at the same time that King appeared to be in his letter from Birmingham jail talking to a primarily white audience, he was giving a simultaneously giving a very different message to his black audience um, because he knew that they were eavesdropping. And then I argued that Malcolm X was doing the same thing when he talked predominantly to an African-American audience. He was really sending these very directed messages to a white audience, too, about potentials for violence and rebellion in, in the United States. They try to project the image to the public. This is being done by thieves, thieves alone. And they ignore the fact that, no, it's not thieves alone. It's a, it's a corrupt, vicious, hypocritical system that is castrated the black man. And the only way the black man can get back at it is to strike it in the only way he knows how. I played with that. I had a lot of fun with it. But then I wanted to do something even more contemporary. And I asked myself, well, where are the urban conversations today? Because in each in each shift, right, the United States is going through its revolution and it's young people that are behind it. So I'm like, okay, where are these young black voices that are pushing for something different, pushing for the, the community to realize its full potential? And I was like, oh, well, that's hip hop. That's where I need to go. So it's my cohort used to make fun of me because no matter what we were studying in grad school, my final paper was always going to be about hip-hop. So even in like Latin rhetoric, my final paper <laughs> was on hip-hop. And the day I got one of my old school professors to say the word gangsta in class, it was wonderful. And he, you know, he paused before he said it, like, am I really going to do this? <laughs> and he actually said, you know, Ebony's paper is on gangsta rap. And I was like, yay, you said it out loud. But it was just that one time that he actually said gangsta in class. So I just sort of pushed hip-hop through all these different lenses to get myself familiar with the, the work that had been written on hip-hop and to think about my angle. And when it came time to write the dissertation, I thought back to that moment in Indianapolis in the church parking lot. And, you know, it's a, you have to create original research for your dissertation. I was like, what's going to be new? People have already told the hip-hop stories. I don't want to do just a straight-up analysis of how the, how the songs work. Like, I need to have something thematic behind it. And that thematic thing was going to be the religious component. At, at that point, there was one book. Noise and Spirit, edited by Anthony Penn, that was out about rap and religion at all. And I thought if it was an important conversation for me, then it was going to be an important conversation for other people too. So the dissertation is essentially an analysis of three rap songs by Death Row artists. Um, I take a look at Snoop's Murder Was the Case, The Lady of Rage's Confessions, and also Tupac's Blasphemy um, from the Don Cluminati. It's the lesser known track. People usually think of Hail Mary and To Live and Die in LA, but I think that Blasphemy is ingenious when it comes to its religiosity and the way Tupac plays with different religious themes. He talks a lot about like avatars and there are lots of Buddhist themes, there are lots of Rastafarian themes in addition to sort of the Christian and Muslim. Like I don't know any other rapper that traffics in so many religions in one song the way Tupac does in Blasphemy and it never gets the props that it that it deserves. My family tree consists of drug dealers, thugs and killers struggling, known to hustle, screaming, fuck they feelings. I got advice from my father, all he told me was this, nigga, get off your ass if you plan to be rich. There's 10 rules to the game, but I'll share what you do. No, niggas gon' hate you for whatever you do. Now who won? Get your cash on M.O.B. That's money over bitches cause they breed envy. Now rule two is a hard one. Watch for phonies. Keep your enemies close, nigga. Watch your homies. It seemed a little unimportant when he told me I smile. Having spent all those years in church, I was really familiar with church discourses, and I would ask 
myself, you know, what does church and what does hip hop have in common? I'm like, well, both are spaces where people go when they're having hard times, when people are trying to find ways to resist oppression, to feel like they could find some hope. You can go to church and you can feel better by listening to, listening to Precious Lord by Thomas Dorsey or Keep Your Head Up by Tupac Shakur. I mean, the lyrics are different, but the message is essentially the same. It's like you can make it another day, whether you've got hip hop to help you survive or whether you've got a bigger God to help you survive. So in some instances, like hip hop is the savior. In some instances, the the religious saviors work within hip hop to inspire communities. Both church and hip hop also, though, have the same potential for perpetuating oppression, which makes them really interesting spaces, right? They're as liberating as they are constraining. If you're a woman in hip hop, good luck with that, right? If you consider yourself to be gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, good luck with that in hip hop and good luck with that in the black church, too. Like, you're excluded from both of those spaces. But African Americans have a history of making room for themselves in spaces that would rather oust them. So there's this this big block of history that also allows us to think about how in places that want us to be constrained in a particular box, we can still move beyond that box and create something beautiful and fascinating and complex and intersectional and, and liberating at some times and constraining at other times, but still worth the while because it's been a, it's a project that has blood, sweat, and tears in it for people that essentially at the end of the day, all they want is better than what they'd had before. All right. Let's go. has shown me the limits of religiosity. And even though the book is titled Rap and Religion, it's essentially about God and how people think about God. So in doing the research, I have probably moved away from organized religion and more to thinking about God and who God is and what role God plays and how much of God's responsibilities over time have been socially constructed by other groups of people that I have simply inherited and that perhaps it's time now that I claim my own definitions and relationship to God based upon my experiences and not just things that I've heard. So having read a lot of books about God and how God was created in the Bible and how different groups of community used God and the potential for or God's plural, and also looking at changes in my life, places where I thought I definitely felt, for lack of a better phrase, a hand of God or God's silence, who it is that I want God to be. And ultimately, I realized that God is who you need God to be. And that God will take on different identities at different times in your life. So the gangsta's God is a persona that makes young people feel empowered when they're faced with disempowering circumstances. Because if God is riding and dying for you, who's going who's gonna to be able to confront you, right? I love the phrase, what if my God is your God's God? And that's something that the gangster really embodies. It's, it's, a, it's a gangsta persona, not a real gangster that like gangbangs in the streets, right? Or a mafia style gangster, but a persona that's created to make you feel like you're bigger than your circumstances, that you have more control over your life than perhaps you actually have. That's how I define a gangsta. And that's also how I define God, like bigger than life circumstances gives you more control than you would otherwise have. So the gangsta's God is yet another social construction that hasn't seen as much uh, public conversation as our other ideas about God, but is still destined to empower people to be better than they were before, to be better, to live better, to think bigger, to act bolder, 
than they would have done in other circumstances. They say I'm greedy, but I still want more. Cause my eyes want to journey some more. Really though. Check it out. I'll lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord for my soul to keep. If I should die before I pray, I pray the Lord for my soul to take. I think for me, like I had to let go of some maybe restricting ideas about God. I just looked primarily for the similarities between the religious messages I had received and the hip-hop messages that I had received. When I was feeling badly about something, there was a gospel song for that, probably something Kirk Franklin-ish would have been my choice, but there was also like a hip-hop song for that. Perhaps something from Lauryn Hill would have been my choice, and I was feeling better either way. When I was looking to the future or trying to figure out how to deal with someone who who was becoming a roadblock or a stumbling block for me, I mean, there are tons of religious messages and hip-hop messages that are the same, and in that sense. And for all the negativity that you can find in hip hop, you can also find it in the black church, let me tell you, <laughs> when it comes to money scandals, when it comes to sex scandals, I mean, they abound. Drug scandals, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've been in the church long enough to have seen them all. So I think that both my religious experiences and my hip hop experiences helped me to become less judgmental in general and just focus on the human experience. Humans make mistakes. And in hip hop, they're more inclined to lay them bare and tell you all about them. In the church spaces, they're more inclined to sort of cover them up and hope that they go away, at least in my personal experiences. So in that sense, hip hop was a relief because it's like, yeah, this situation is so fucked up, let me tell you about it. And in church, it's like, oh no, that didn't really happen. There was a performance aspect in hip-hop that everyone on the inside knew was performance. That was not the case in church spaces. Some people really thought that they gave you that money and there were blessings waiting for them when they got home, and that's not what happened. And that became difficult for me to kind of square in the ways that hip-hop didn't require that kind of faith. I suppose, in the sense of, you know, believing in things that you cannot see. Hip-hop didn't demand that of me in the same way that church spaces demanded that of me. And so in that sense, I felt a little more comfortable in the in the hip-hop spaces. I feel like, you know, when I was younger, people were always saying, you should do volunteer opportunities, come with me to the soup kitchen. I was like, okay, I could come with you to the soup kitchen. I could dish out food all day. I'm perfectly capable of doing that. But that's not where my talents and skills are. If I'm going to give back to the community, I want to give the stuff that I'm really good at. Instead, I want to participate in this literacy program because reading is going to open the door for everything else and for years. I read to kids on the weekends. I did literacy things because the power of the spoken word was essential to me for, for realizing one's power and influence in life. And so that's where I put my talents and energies because that's what I knew that I was good at. So your gift in the world, other people might see something else on you, but the closer you get to the God in you, the more prepared you will be to do what it is that you were called to do in life. And you've got to stay that track regardless of what anyone else says. So I think that 
all of my church experiences led me to this particular moment to have these conversations about rap and religion in ways that we haven't had them before. And other people, I have great friends that are doing similar work. I mean, Dan White Hodge is doing great work, and Andre Johnson is doing great work, and Monica Miller is doing great work, but none of them are telling the stories that I'm telling because it's part of my personal story. Now I don't, I Lauren Hills, I used to love him, featuring Mary J. Blige. I was one of those little girls that loved Lauren Hill. I mean, Lauren Hill was just, I don't know, she was everyone's shero. Like, I, she had it all. I mean, she could sing, she could act, she could dance, she could rap. I mean, there just weren't any other women like Lauren Hill. She was fashionable. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill is a classic. There will never be another album like The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I don't know anyone who heard the album all the way through that didn't like it. And that was the beauty of it. Everybody, all different types of people could find some space for themselves in The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. I I think it's a, a masterful album. I Used to Love Him was one of my favorite songs on the album when it first came out. And then it became one of my research texts. And as soon as that happens, I start to see the song differently. So on one level, it's a quintessential breakup song. I used to love him and now I don't, right? I don't know what little girl hasn't had the attitude and done the finger and the head roll. Like I used to love him and now I don't, right? Kick rocks. But the more you listen to the song, the more the song becomes about domination and submission. So when Lauren and Mary are singing about their relationship with the young man, he was clearly dominating them. And they use these natural metaphors, um, particularly one of the ocean. Like, he was the ocean and I was the sand. So the ocean is beating up on the sand. The ocean is wrenching pieces of the sand away um, from the shore and carrying it off to the ocean, like never to be re retrieved again. The ocean is this dominating, tumultuous, masculine force that overpowers these women. And Mary's verse, she sings about how she was addicted to love like a fiend. And, and Lauren talks about how their their visions were blurred. They weren't their normal selves. They didn't have their, they weren't at their best in terms of their mental and emotional capabilities. The thief comes in and steals her heart in the middle of the night, like the epicenter of her being. She's like hopeless and helpless without him. It's dominating, it's tragic, and it's scary at the end of the day. One situation, involved a young man, involved a young man, he was the ocean, and I was the same, he stole So these women arrive at the crossroad trying to figure out what to do next in this relationship. And instead of taking a different path, they turn around and go back to where they came from. God comes and tells them to go back. And I thought, that's a problem. Why would you go back to the same position that got you here in this bad position? Seems to me that if you go back, you could just end up in the bad position all over again. And that's exactly what happens to the women in the song. Instead of the young man being the ocean as this tumultuous force, God 
becomes the ocean. That's this tumultuous, dominating force. So I argue in the Lauren Hill chapter in the book that they are sinking deeper in the ocean with God and are perhaps in more trouble than they were before with the young man because they have no one to save them. The women never find any agency. Agency would look like, I used to love him and now I love me. But instead they say, I used to love him, but now I don't. There's nothing to fill in the blank. There's nothing to suggest that the women have become more empowered. There's nothing that encourages them to choose a different path. They just go back to where they came from and essentially remain stuck. They don't make any choices on their own. They just swap out the young man as a dominating force for God as a dominating force. And they give everything over to God in the same way they gave everything over to the young man. They have nothing left for themselves. So power is patriarchal. God is patriarchal. Even though they're sister friends and they're supporting each other and they're supporting other women in the song, there's no room for a mother God. There's no room for a nurturing female figure. There's no room for a goddess to come and help the women realize their feminine potential and be their best selves as grown women. Instead, they're always looking for a dominating patriarchal masculine force to come save them. All my and glory And I used to love him. And so the more I listened to the song, the more I thought, this is incredibly problematic. Everyone loves Lauren Hill, and yet Lauren Hill is, is stuck in these dominant, submissive paradigms. And I started re-listening to the entire album, and the entire album is that way. And of course, I can't prove any of this. But Lauren Hill fell off after the miseducation of Lauren Hill. She's never been the same. And I feel like in that album, she was trying to tell her audiences how broken she was. But no one heard her. Lauren Hill really needed someone to reach out to her and support her and give her a hug and show her, show her how to be the woman that she desired to be but couldn't see outside of patriarchy. But instead, they just put her up on a pedestal and they celebrated her as like sort of a, a queen. She's a queen on a pedestal that we pay homage to and that we celebrate but still doesn't enact any agency. And I think that became too much for her. She couldn't tell people how she really felt or what she really needed or what she really wanted. And instead, she was supposed to also become a superwoman and be all things to all people. And people, little girls like me, were looking up to Lauren Hill for answers. And Lauren was like, I don't have anything. Like, I'm heartbroken. And my life is sort of falling apart. I mean, just that kind of messiness suggests to me that Lauren Hill was trying to communicate something much deeper in that album that no one paid attention to. And that she was struggling with these ideas of what it meant to be a fully gentle and empowered black woman in the world that other people looked up to. And that she never really learned how to take care of herself. And that's why Lauren Hill hasn't emerged as the Lauren Hill that we thought she could have been. And quite frankly, I don't think she will. I think that, that her time has passed. But the Lauren Hill that we used to know won't come back because that Lauren Hill doesn't exist anymore. The little girl Lauren Hill that was crying out for help on the miseducation never got it. And I think she died, quite frankly. And I don't think that we'll have access to her again. But I think that what happened is clearly articulated in the album if we know how to listen to it. Father, you save me. And you showed me that life was much more than being 
Lauren started out as a good girl who kind of fell off and went kind of crazy. So there's much more pressure on the stereotypical good girl, right, to behave in a certain way. Mary started out as a bad girl who found her way back to goodness. So Mary started out like super hood. She had her drug issues. She had her alcohol issues. And everybody was like, whoo, I hope Mary makes it, right? And so when Mary turns her life around and gets clean and gets married, we're like, oh, happy day. Like, Mary made it. But when the stories go the other way, we have much less sympathy for people who we felt like had everything and then couldn't couldn't keep up with the goodness or couldn't keep making it happen. Mary has that sound that Lauren needed for the track. I can't imagine anyone else doing it but her because, you know, Mary is not as much known for her beautiful singing voice as she is known for her emotive singing voice. Like, you can hear pain in Mary's voice, unlike many other singers. Like, Mary just kind of nails the angst in ways that even Lauren can't with her voice. And so I think that Mary needed to bring that kind of pain to the track. And I also think that Mary and Lauren are very different but they both needed to be on the same track to show women supporting other women. I think the track does that very well, like that sister friend concept, that there are other women who've been through what you've been through. So it helps if you can walk this road with one of them as opposed to by yourself. Reminding women in the audience that there are women whose names you may not know, but who've had similar experiences, right? And so you can count on sort of your ancestors and your unborn to sort of be there for you in this kind of communal experience. So the track does that really well. And if Lauren had just been by herself, she wouldn't have been able to bring community the way the two of them bring community together. The song I want to talk about is Mindfuck, A New Equation. And the beauty of this song is that it's equal parts hopeless and hopeful. The more I listen to it, it's like Boots will turn a phrase and he will all of a sudden be arguing for the opposite side of his opposite side of his original claim. So in the chorus that starts the song in between the verses, he's rapping, they're giving us a mind fuck and they ain't gotta put our hands in cuffs. They can tell us to stay put and that's enough. We bust, they feel the earth vibrating. Like in one phrase, right? They can tell us to stay put and that's enough, but then we bust, 
right? And the earth's vibrating. And it's not an earthquake. Like, it's that new equation. We're about to do something else. And the entire song is that equal parts, yin and yang. And I also love the way he plays with gender in the song. When he starts talking about, you know, a man being frustrated, and then he talks about the woman being frustrated, and he goes back to this exchange between the men and the women in the song that I think is is absolutely cool. The fog pours in like the liquid scream. Nightfall comes in the cricket scream. Deafened by the latest level ticket schemes. Cement lies and white picket dreams. The pain on his face is glistening. No one's eyes are listening. Till his 44 starts whistling. Hairs on necks bristling. You can holler so loud till the silence comes. Ask that hustler with the Midas tongue. He was born after you, but not quite as young. Waiting for the day when the fighters come. She said, seem like traffic lights always red. Your application's on fire. So they said. She was the great leaders, wasn't always dead. She could resurrect them inside of her. So this is from Pick a Bigger Weapon, which came out in 2005, 2006. So I was finishing my dissertation at the time, and I love this album. Like, I even love the title, like, Pick a Bigger Weapon. And, and I think the album itself is equal parts like play and revolution, you know? Pick a bigger weapon in terms of, you know, like, get high, get drunk, do whatever it is you need to do to feel better about yourself. But at the same time, you need to pick a bigger weapon for the revolution. Just sitting around talking about it is not going to be sufficient. So even though this is a more contemporary rap song that I wasn't listening to in my formative years, I think it sums up those formative years and the way it talks about what's necessary to create a revolution. And it sort of brings me back to my earlier research on revolutions. When we're talking about abolitionist rhetoric, when we're talking about civil rights and black power, people that died and gave their lives so that their children's children's children could have a slightly better future than the one we have today. And what frustrates me the most is that I feel like we didn't get it. I feel like a lot of the youth today are living in this mind fuck in the sense that on paper, it looks like you should be living a better life. It looks like we have racial equality. It looks like that you could go wherever you want to college and get whatever job that, that you desire to get once you graduate and that you'll get a good paying money on that job and you'll lead a good life, but you won't. But you won't because there are so many hindrances in the way for young black people if you, if you even live long enough to be the age of someone who's graduated from college and gotten a good job, if you can even afford college, if you can graduate from college without massive amounts of debt, but the world is shaped in a way, particularly in our popular culture, that suggests that it's a meritocracy and that if you do well, there are rewards waiting for you. They ain't gotta put our hands in cups. They can tell us they put mess enough we bust. They feel the earth vibrate. It ain't an earthquake, we just need a new equation. They ain't gotta put our hands in cups. They can tell us they put mess enough we bust. They feel the earth vibrate. It ain't an earthquake, we just need a new equation. And the coup reminds us that that's a mind fuck. This idea that you could just have whatever you want because you live in America, that's totally not the case. But he also talks about how folks are just sort of escaping, right? Just sort of giving up because they feel like they can't get what they want or getting high because they feel like they can't get what they want or giving into sex because they feel like they just can't get what they want. And that's how a mind fuck works. I mean, Boots says in verse two, you know, he was killed in the end by quiet persuasion, not the FBI home invasion. Like, they're not going to come for us the way they came for Fred Hampton. But that doesn't mean they quit. He was killed in the end by quiet persuasion, 
Not the FBI home invasions, nor the cross on his lawn in blazing. The predictable fights in phase and bullhorns off, holidays given. House notes, 9 to 5 prison. He yells at the news saying there'd be a movement that the new generation was a little more driven. One mind, two hands, four walls. She says, bad blinds, gon' fall. She tell you the signs. Since everybody dumb, she'll be home waiting for the Messiah's phone calls. There was pride in the fact that the blunt was massive. Tight like the ships in the middle passes. They escaped through the flames. Then wondered if the flame in the There are several metaphors for silence in the song that I think are beautiful. Like, Boots says, no one's eyes are listening. Like, I just think that's gorgeous. It's kind of, it's also a play on, on your third eye, right? And being aware of what's going on around you. But the idea is that, like, eyes are listening. Like, what we see is just as important as the things that we hear. And if we can't hear them, perhaps we could still see them. And if we see them, we still got to learn how to hear them. And so he plays with, like, silence and sound and history and motive and voices and who gets to speak and who doesn't in these beautiful metaphors. Like, this is also my favorite line from the third verse day broke in like a fiend with a ladder <laughs> it's, I mean it's it's gorgeous like day broke in like a fiend with a ladder like if you are familiar with urban communities and sort of crack histories like you know what that means a fiend with a ladder and the next line is suicide dewdrops splatter like dewdrops a suicide I mean I don't know like the metaphors are great the story is great most of my students when I try to play tracks from pick a bigger weapon in class they don't like the sound like oh those beats are play like that's not hot and I'm like, all right, okay, but can we at least listen to, and they're like, no, we can't listen because we don't like the way it sounds. I'm like, you know, what are you going to do with the 20-somethings? I personally think that the lyrics are so pertinent that I don't really need to be dancing to it. But I personally like love the way it sounds because the beat doesn't interfere with Boots' lyrics on the track. They ain't got to put our hands in cuffs. They can tell us they put the mess enough. We bust, they feel the earth vibrate. It ain't an earthquake, we just need a new equation. They ain't got to put our hands in cuffs. They can tell us they put the mess enough. We bust, they feel the earth vibrate. It ain't an earthquake, we just need a new equation. And I also like the way he describes ideal America when he's talking about crowded rooms of lonely souls at work before the whistle blows, like this sort of going to your job and having to pay your bills and waiting for your kids to grow up, always waiting for something outside of the nine to five prison. And when he talks about suburban America with white picket dreams and cement, like the, the mind fuck is that this ideal, idyllic little world is what we're supposed to have with our American dream and our kids and our jobs. And that's what pacifies us and keeps us from the new equation, from the revolution that we really need for thinking about what it means to be a human being in different ways. And I don't know of any mainstream artists that talk about revolution in those terms. Instead, the goal seems to be to get as much as you can as quickly as you can, but instead Boots is saying getting as much as you can as quickly as you can is killing you and keeping you from even dreaming other dreams, right? We get so caught up in the things that we want that we can't really focus on anything else. We don't know how to focus on anything else. And when his characters start to give up, that's that's why. Like some of them are giving up because they no longer have the capacity to dream bigger dreams. And that's for me, like that's the biggest tragedy, right? When you can't even dream a different future than the one that you have. As long as you have your imagination, there's still hope. But if you don't have your imagination anymore, then what is there to look forward to? Boots is saying, listen, let me take your hand and sort of walk you through what this new equation will look like. You have choices. If you activate your imagination, we could all construct a better world. And yet it's not preachy. 
it's not preachy at all. Like it's not, there's no condemnation. Like there's no, there's no judgment. It just sort of is what it is from Boots's perspective. And in my opinion, I think it also sounds good. So this is one of my favorite songs for the way that it walks through history and also tries to direct us to a new future. Day breaks in like a fiend with a ladder. Suicidal dewdrop splatter. Teeth on shirtless bodies chatter. A blowjob short of a breakfast platter. Crowded rooms of lonely souls at work before the whistle blows. They've never known their strength and numbers. So power seems so mystical. They're waiting for that perfect day when they've paid all their bills. The kids are grown. They graduate and gorillas come out the hills. And for her it gets too much Till she won't accept my touch She'll fix it by herself She's falling into them I was a little girl when you had to do your research project I was going to do it on somebody black In high school I was writing about the Black Panthers And my high school English teacher was fresh out of college And had no idea what to do with me <laughs> I mean she just I was like this mini little revolutionary And I made her really nervous Like not intentionally but Just because I had big questions And I only wanted to write and think about black people So she assigned me to like the high school literary magazine magazine and I didn't have to come to class for the rest of the semester. And then I went to Indiana and there were 36,000 students and 1,500 black people. So it became much more important for me to build an African-American community. I mean, for the most part, they seem like nice white people, but I wanted to be around folks that looked like me. And I, I graduated from a predominantly black high school. So it was the first time in life that I had to start to create a community. And some of my white friends from high school that we ended up going to the same college, like we'd be hanging out, one of my white guy friends, we went to dinner and I was like, yo, you have to walk me home. And he's like, I don't want to walk you home. Like, it's not that far away. Like, he's complaining, right? So I make him walk me home. And the pickup trucks are like passing us and like hollering racial slurs because he's white and like I'm black. Several of my friends, my black male friends just disappeared from undergrad. You know, they'd be in school one semester and then they just they'd be gone. And I was trying to figure out why one of my friends who disappeared, like he came back, actually not to school, but I ran into him in Indianapolis. And he was like, yo, Eb, everybody's in the jail. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, he was like, like, I got picked up on some BS. And like, we didn't have the money to get out. And we didn't have attorneys. And he was like, everybody's in like the Bloomington jail. That's what happens when you disappear from college and you don't come back. It had never occurred to me. I never really thought of it that way. But again, like at Southern Indiana, the running joke was that when you leave Bloomington, if you're going to Indianapolis, you had best not stop in any of the counties in between because you might not make it if you were black. So you shouldn't drive by yourself. You shouldn't go at night and you definitely shouldn't stop. And I think that's what happened to several of them just sort of got caught up in the system that way. The school also had a program where they would recruit African-American students and first-generation students the summer after high school before you start college. And they would set you up with summer classes and all these programs to help acclimate you to college. Then after your first year, all that support disappeared. There was no retention strategy. They just wanted the numbers for the books. And the kids were completely lost. Like, they didn't have the support that they needed. They didn't have the money that they needed to finish school. And so a lot of people just had to go home after that first year because they couldn't they couldn't continue with the program. They can tell us they put mess enough with us. They feel the earth vibrate. It ain't an earthquake. We just need a little equation. When I got to Northwestern and started grad school, I hadn't had, I'd never owned a TV. And so one of my friends from college was moving away and she gave me her television. So I was like, oh, I have a TV for the first time. Here's a cable special for all the movie packages. I deserve it. You know, I'm in grad school. So I got the entire movie package and I had black stars. And 
it was close to February, and I think I watched a documentary every several documentaries every single night on Black Stars. And I went to the library, and Northwestern has an awesome archive collection. I watched all of the Eyes on the Prize, both sessions. I watched all the Attica footage. I watched all the original footage of Malcolm X and his interviews. Like I just sort of overloaded on all of this footage to catching up on my Black history. And I came home, and I was like, Yo, Mom, all of this happened when you were a college student. How come you never told me about Asada Shakur? Like, how come you never had anything to say about Angela Davis? We were in the kitchen and my mother, she was at the sink and she turns around and looks at me and she says, I was trying to raise my family. And then I realized that I was never going to have another conversation about race relations with my mother. But I also realized that these are the choices that some some black women felt that they had to make. You know, I was either going to do the consciousness thing or I was going to do the raising my children thing. And my mother chose to like focus on her family as opposed to giving me a racial consciousness. And for years, I was mad about that. I was like, this is what you were supposed to do for me. In addition to everything else, like this is the legacy that you were supposed to give me. And you didn't. That's like a mom fail. But as I got older, the more again, I realized that you know people have to make their choices and she did the best that she could with what she had and that's always what African Americans do. But when it's my turn, I wanna make a very different type of choice when it comes to political consciousness and understanding racial history. And as much as I love to read, I must say, thank God for the documentaries because it caught me up really quickly. And so I could have conversations with people like about history and then just seeing these people. Like I'd never seen pictures of Kathleen Cleaver. I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't know what elders looked like. I didn't know what Huey looked like. I had never seen him speaking. So, I mean, that was my closest opportunity to being there that I could muster. And I spent, I probably spent a year just sort of overdosing on all of it and taking notes on all the things that I missed and talking about it to anyone who would listen to me. In the ghetto, can't spam hand to hand. No deals made, dollar for dollar, gram for gram. You follow me and see just how much a man can stand. Before we go off the deep end, come to your crib and creep in. Help us get home invaded. The hustles, they gon' get raided eventually. But for now, they stay thugging and motivated. Misguided, miseducated, we barely be graduating. And our lack of skills lead to some deadly infatuations in the ghetto The barrio, the hood, the slums Government funds fill my city up with drugs and guns And I can't go for being broke, so I'ma go on the run I'ma yeah. understand the way I live, but can't give up on the sun Even though I know she hear about my habits through the grapevine Still in the car on Sundays to hit the state line Get drunk and twisted off liquor all through the daytime Handshakes and gang signs, don't play with mine in the ghetto I mean, to my knowledge, when I'm tenured at Long Beach State, I will be the first African-American woman tenured in the department ever. My, my little brother, I was talking to him the other day, and the advertisement for Red Tails came on. And he was like, are black people still making history? And I, and I told him that about me. And he was like, oh. I was like, yeah, in the history of the university, I'd be the first in 2012. I was like, black people are still making history. I was like, oh, and we have a black president. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends that in 2012 are the first for a lot of things, the first and only, right? So I'd be the only tenure track. There are no other sort of tenure track professor, African-American besides me and my department. Like I didn't know any black women who were PhDs. It wasn't until there was a white woman in undergrad who thought there was something special about me and said, you should call the McNair director. I think you might be interested in this program. And I did McNair for the first summer and I loved it. So I was 19 when I knew I wanted to be a professor because I knew that I loved ideas and I wanted to read and write and teach. But had that individual not reached out to me, I wouldn't have a model for what I'm doing right now, like not in my personal life. And it just so happens that through the McNair program, I know lots of other black women who are doing what I'm doing. But again, without that program, where would my community be? Where would I find these other women that are studying things that I'm studying that are about my age? Oh,
Culture is just merely the the entree for having these bigger race type conversations because if I started with race, no one would listen. But if I start with hip hop, I have an audience that's more inclined to have these conversations. I mean, the same thing with with sexism and patriarchy. If I just talked, if I said I was a feminist and I was anti sexism, much of the younger generation is not going to listen to me. But if I say that my research is woman centered and I'm interested in how women are depicted in hip hop. I can have a broader conversation. Boots does a really good job at talking about the differences between how the genders are dealing with the mindfuck in his song. Lauren Hill is always about gender and women's experiences, and I can talk about gender without man-hating and still have a really productive conversation about how patriarchy and domination and submission work in the world. This is for Beatrice Bertha, Benjamin who gave Bertha, City Azita, for Lavender Hill, for Kylisha, Mitchell's playing Swazi girls, I'm repping for the men in Berg, who will let to, where you just be blessed to get through, for beauty shining through like the sun at the highest noon, from the top of the cable car, a table mountain, I am you, girls with the sky is blue, eyes in the darkest skin, for cape colored call, for realizing we're African. For all my cousins back home, the strength of mommy's backbone, the length of which she went for raising, sacrificing her own, the pain of not reflecting, the range of our complexions, for rubber pellet scars on Auntie Ellen's back on Mars, just great caramel shining in all our glory, for more rich than St. Helena, my blood is a million stories, Winnie for Jonah, for Edie, for Norma, Leslie and Dee for Auntie Betty, for Melanie, all the same family. Fiona Joker, complex of mixed girls, but surviving through every lie they put into us now. This world's yours, and I swear I will stand focused. Black girls, raise up your hands, the world should clap for us. Hip hop matters because it's a reflection of American society as a whole. If it's happening in the world, it will eventually also happen in hip hop. But because hip hop is so creative, because hip hop is so rebellious, because hip hop is so unpredictable, It'll give it back to you in a way that you hadn't anticipated. So I think that hip hop matters because hip hop is our contemporary urban griot. Hip hop tells our urban stories in a way that helps us remember them.